Amen. Let me invite you to open up in your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 16. And we're going to begin in verse 13 of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13 and reading through the end of the chapter. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, from this reading in Matthew 16, we're going to see confession, rejection, and correction. First, the confession. Have you noticed how God and Jesus ask questions of humans? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, God asked his first question to Adam. What's that question? Where are you? Followed by, who told you that you were naked? To Cain, God asked, where is your brother Abel? To Job, God asked, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? (laughs) Questions from God give humans the chance to reflect, recognize, and or repent. And here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? As we look at verse 16, we see that Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, God's chosen one, appointed to deliver God's people. Peter calls Jesus the Son of God, meaning Jesus is divine. He's God. See, the term Son of God refers to attribute, not ancestry, to character, not chromosomes. I am the son of Silas, that's my father's name, and I share my father's character. I am full of his nature, which is sin. Jesus is the same nature as God. Colossians 1.15, for example, reads, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And later on in that chapter, verse 19, it reads, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus And notice also that Peter confesses God as the living God. This means God is active now. God is able today. God is at work all around. You see, God is not dead. Every other God is dead. God is not distant or absent. You remember those times in your job or at school when maybe the boss was away or the teacher was away and maybe you or maybe others around you would slack off and play a little bit. My mom used to uh, go bowling, and she always warned my brother-in-law, my brother and I do not play sports in the house when I'm gone. And she would leave, and we played sports in the house. See, we knew what time she would return, so we just simply stopped and tied it up before she got home. See, but you can't do that with God. See, God is ever-present, ever-watching, ever-knowing. He is the living God. And it is on this confession that in verse 18, Jesus says he will build his church. Now the church, the church is individuals called out from the world unto Jesus. The church has confessed what Peter has confessed. Faith in the living God through Jesus, the divine human, who was appointed by God for the salvation of all who believe. Now, some will say that the rock upon which the church is built, uh, Jesus is referring here to himself. And there's good reason for this. There are many references in the Bible to Jesus and God being rock. Others will say that the rock is Peter himself. And they point to Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost and proclaiming the gospel to both the Jew and the Gentile or the non-Jew. But no one of any worth will look at this passage and applying the proper value and respect to it will say this establishes Peter as the first pope. Now whatever or whoever the rock is that Jesus will build his church upon, look at the end of verse 18. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades could be understood to represent evil, Satan, temptation. Now the church will feel the effects of evil and Satan and temptation. It's why the church is instructed to arm ourselves for suffering. But the promise is the church will not be overcome by evil. Also, the truth is individual Christians can give in to temptation and Satan. It's why we are instructed to take heed lest we fall. But the promise is the church as a whole will not be overcome Well, then we come to verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth 
will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is addressed to the apostles as a body and not just to Peter alone. What does it mean? Turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, last book of the Bible. And in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus himself is is speaking uh, through a vision to John. And in Revelation 3, 7, we read these words that Jesus says of himself. So Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now these very words are actually taken from a prophecy uh, spoken to a man named Eliakim in Isaiah 22. And in that prophecy, Eliakim was to become steward of the palace. Now that's a position usually given to a king's son. And the steward has authority over the treasury of the kingdom and over the internal affairs of the royal household. So when Jesus takes those words from Isaiah 22 that were spoken to Eliakim and applies them to himself, he is saying that that prophecy of Isaiah 22 has a higher meaning. It's not just a prophecy about Eliakim, but it's a prophecy ultimately about me. That's what Jesus is saying. And taking the position and the authority promised to Eliakim and applying it to Jesus, we see that these words in Revelation 3-7 refer to Jesus' government of the church and redemption of the world. Now, also in Isaiah 22, Eliakim is given a key which represents his sole authority. So back in Matthew 16, 19, when Jesus says to Peter and to all the other apostles, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus is doing is he's transferring his sole authority over redemption and the church to the apostles. And there are two verses which highlight how this transfer of authority happens. The first is John 14, 26. Turn there very quickly. John chapter 14, verse 26. The other one we're not going to read because it says the same thing in the very same context, but it's John 16, 13. But we're just going to read John 14, 26, where we find these words. Jesus says to his disciples, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. And what Jesus is doing here in John 14 and also in John 16, 13, Jesus is is, is preparing to leave and he's going to send the spirit to teach the apostles so that the work of building the church can carry on. And what's interesting is the context of both of those verses is separation. Look at John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus replied, 
If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Verse 24, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. When you examine Jesus, you quickly discover that everywhere he taught, everything he taught, everything he did always caused separation. Some rejecting, some confessing. And thus, the teaching that the apostles were to carry on, that we still carry on today, those who agree with the apostles' teaching and confess the apostles' teachings are in the kingdom. Those who reject it remain outside. Well, back in Matthew 16, the second part of verse 19 is on the same basis. The binding and the loosing are based on Jewish tradition. What is bound is outlawed, illegal, wrong. What is loosed is permissible, lawful, and right. Now, what is bound and what is loosed does not originate with the apostles. I think most translations, you probably have it in your Bible, uh, have a footnote that will state that verse 19 properly reads, will have been, will have been bound, or will have been loosed in heaven is the proper translation, the proper reading. Thus, what God has already stated is permissible and not permissible, that will be taught to the apostles. And it's still passed on today through the teaching of the church. Now, this is an awesome confession. What a powerful confession. That's because everything about this confession comes from God himself. Look at verse 17. Peter makes that great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. See, no man can receive God. No man can approach God. No man can possess God. God must approach man and give him the gift of faith in order to believe. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus and he will build it. It's the work of God. It's the work of Jesus. The Bible here says that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's not because of our power. That's because of the promise and the power of Jesus who promised that no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then Jesus gives the apostles keys, his keys, his own authority, his own words, which will determine who is in and who is out of the kingdom. And the rules, laws, and regulations of church government and of ordinary everyday life, they all come directly from heaven. What a powerful confession this is. The church is God's creation. You who believe, you're not your own. You've been bought at a price. Your faith, your perseverance, your understanding, your growth all come from God. The teachings of this institution that we call the church, the very presence of the church, your very presence in the world, you, you are a creation of God himself. You are the very presence of God himself here on earth. What an awesome, joyful responsibility those of us who have confessed Jesus have. What a powerful confession. 
but now, rejection. Let's read out loud together verse 21. It's coming up, I think. There we go. Let's all read that out loud together. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it was plain, simple, understandable what Jesus explained to his disciples? Raise your hand if you think it was. Okay, raise your hand if you think, no, it wasn't plain, it wasn't simple, it wasn't understandable. Well, the correct answer is yes and no. You see, we, we know that they did not fully understand God's plan of crucifixion and resurrection. We know that. It's the same for us today. We do not fully understand every implication of, of God's plans and rules. If we did, we would be God. That's why instead we have to depend on God and trust in God. Yet, we do know that Peter did understand enough to know that he didn't like what he heard. And Peter demonstrates in verse 22 the essence of every person who rejects God, the essence of every sinful act, and it is this, Peter becomes God. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Peter takes God behind the woodshed and corrects him. He simply does not agree with what he's heard from God. It doesn't align with his plans, his hopes, his desires, his ideas of what should happen. Peter lords it over the Lord of all. Amazing. But that is the essence of each rejection of God. And it happens all over the place, all the time. For example, people do not like the presence of so much suffering, and they reject the supposed God who continues to, they suppose, sit idly by and do nothing. You'd better know that if Jesus were alive and walking on the earth today, there would be many who would want just five minutes of his time to do what Peter did, and to do what the Pharisees constantly did, just to give Jesus a piece of their mind. But Jesus isn't here, so they stop you instead and give you five minutes of their time and a piece of their mind. But how does Jesus respond to Peter's rebuke? Look at the end of verse 23. Jesus says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You see, there's a divide between God's plans and man's plans, the way God operates and the way man thinks things should go. And never the twain shall meet. You would think, you would think that, that God would appeal to men. Instead, God is appalling to men. That's why God must come to man. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. So we had the confession and the rejection. Now, what is the correction? And I, I invite you at this point to please stay with me because I, I know I, I, most of the time I'm sitting where you're sitting. And I would think 
perhaps what you might be tempted to think right now, that this correction part, yeah, that refers to the pagans, the great mass of heathen, the atheists, the unbelievers, many of whom have driven past this church very happily today with no thought of coming in, with no thoughts of God. Except when we read verse 24, we find these words. Then Jesus said to his disciples. And the correction is actually found in verse 27. Let me read that to you. It says, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. The correction is the fact that Jesus is coming back in judgment. Remember the essence of Peter's rejection? The essence of every sin is that we become God. The correction is remembering the true God is returning. And we who think we are God will stand before this God in judgment. I'm sure we've all had times in our life, we have memories, we, we wish, I wish I could go back and do something different. Wish I could go back and be in a different place. Well, I have this recurring memory, and it was brought out by, by, by preparing this sermon, and when I read this, this very passage of a time I wish I could go back to and do something differently. Um, it was in seminary, and I was a, I think you might call it a cleaner here, I was a custodian or a janitor, and uh, there were a few of us seminary guys who were cleaning in this church. And it was a Monday morning, I remember, and uh, there was a guy named Alan Goosby. I always enjoyed listening to Alan Goosby, talking to Alan Goosby. He was so excited about God, so enthusiastic about God. And every Monday, you always ask the seminarians what they did over the weekend, and a lot of us went away to preach. And Alan had gone away to preach this particular weekend. So that Monday, he said, well, I, I was preaching at this church. I forget what church it was. And he says, Mark, do you know what the title of my sermon was? I said, no, no, tell me, Alan. He said, the title of my sermon was, There is a God, and you're not him. And always wish I could go back in time and be at that church and listen to Alan preach that message. Or I wish I could go back in time and just wish I would have had the wits about me to say, Alan, can I have a copy of that message? That's one sermon I would have loved to have heard. Well, here's the correction. There is a God, and you're not him. The true God is returning, and we who think we are God, we're going to stand before that God in judgment. Judgment is often misunderstood, but let me tell you, we must have judgment, or verses 24 to 26 make absolutely no sense. I mean, look at verse 24. I mean, why? Why deny yourself if you just die and turn to dust and that's it? I mean, who are you saving yourself for? For what purpose do you deny yourself in that situation? Uh, look at verse 25. I mean, why? Seriously, why not do everything you can to save your life, to enjoy life, to get the most out of life according to whatever your definition of life is, if you're never going to have to face God to give an answer for your life? Why not? Or look at verse 26. Why? Really, why not gain the world if your soul is going to nothingness forever? Why not? Justin Natman has been visiting with me on the doors, and I really appreciate that. And uh, Justin, you remember, you remember Emma? We met Emma. Emma was a treat. She's an Exeter University student. She's not a believer, 
but she listened. And we had a very intelligent exchange with Emma. Well, Justin wasn't with me three, week, three weeks ago when I met the male version of Emma, a guy named Andy. He's another Exeter University student, and he listened, and he allowed me to reason with him. Now, Andy said, we die, and that's it. I said, Andy, Andy, that, that makes life unfair. I said, think of everyone who will have gotten away with crime, large or small. See, with judgment, there is justice, the justice we long for. And with judgment, therefore, there is meaning to everything we do in life. And Andy listened, and he said, he said, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense. And I hope, therefore, that the idea of judgment also makes sense to you as well. And see, what makes us sure that this judgment is coming is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Paul's line of thinking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is basically this. He says, you know, if we're to strive and sacrifice and follow Christ for the benefit of this life only, that is pitiful and futile. In fact, Paul says, if Christ had not been raised, it is absolutely worthless to follow Jesus. There's no point to it. But, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was raised. And since that was so, that's a sign that everybody will be raised. And there is life to come after our resurrection. And since we will all stand before God in judgment, it is worth us examining our lives to see if our actions are leading us into losing our life or gaining the world. So, for example... We can look at the smartphones we own and maybe the smartphones we've given to our 12-year-old child or grandchild. And we can ask, is this phone helping lose my life or gain the world? The holiday you've booked for next year, why that holiday at that price? Could you maybe have booked a cheaper holiday and used the money saved on something else? You see, because according to these verses, it is no longer acceptable to justify a holiday or a smartphone or a car solely and only on the basis of, well, we can afford it. And why are you watching that movie? Why are you on that webpage? Why do you dress the way you dress? Why are you spending that amount of time on the computer? Obviously, these aren't the only ways we can examine our lives to determine if we're losing our life or gaining the world, but just throwing up some examples. But it's also worth asking, well, what will keep us from becoming legalistic as we examine our lives? Well, a few things to keep in mind, not necessarily in this order, but let's remember the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Let's not say we cannot watch movies or listen to music because those industries are owned by the devil. No, no, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What we should say is that sinners make movies and sinners write music, so let's have God's instruction as we enjoy those industries. Let's also not expect a blanket moral code, say like the Amish, where we expect our standards to apply equally to everyone. Let's keep a fluidity which legalism denies. So one year the spirit may permit you to have the the dream holiday or the the top-of-the-line smartphone. A few years later, the same spirit may not allow you to have that. Or the spirit may allow someone else to have a top-of-the-line smartphone, but not you. But above all else, let's remember, as we examine ourselves, 
not to earn or to keep salvation. The confession of verse 16 is the only means of salvation. And Jesus keeps us safe in his love and power, not based on our holiness. Instead, it works the other way. Out of love for the God who saved us, we would want to listen to the Holy Spirit in us. And let's remember verses like 2 Peter 3.11. The simple fact of judgment should be motivation enough for us to live holy and godly lives. And that's not legalism, that's love. And I want to commend to you Psalm 84. We're going to close with this. Turn to Psalm 84, one of my absolute favorite passages. Psalm 84. I highly commend this to you. As you think about examining your life to determine if you're, 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 you're losing your life or gaining the world. Psalm 84, verse 11, but I think we need to begin in verse 10. Yes, Psalm 84, beginning in verse 10. I love this passage. I've used it a lot this year. And Psalm 84, beginning in verse 10, we find these awesome words. Listen to this. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I see parallels there between losing your life and forfeiting the world. But my favorite encouragement towards forfeiting the world comes at the end of verse 11. Listen to these awesome words. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Folks, let me tell you, when you forfeit the world, when you lose your life, it may seem you are missing out because so many others are doing it, so many others are going to it, and seeming to enjoy it. And adverts will tell you, especially at this time of year, you must have it. But God promises you will not miss one good thing. So you remember at the start of the message, I mentioned three reasons why God might ask questions. Anybody remember what those three reasons are? Any of the three? Why does God ask us questions? So we can reflect, recognize, and or repent. So let me leave you with a few questions. Uh, who do you say Jesus is? When was the last time you rebuked God? Would you rather lose your life or gain the world? And why? And what would it look like for you to lose your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kind, holy, wonderful instruction and your enabling so we could follow that instruction. You giving us this desire to even follow in your footsteps, Father. We thank you for your revelation of yourself. Father, help us all to take advantage of that revelation, either for the first time or to continue, Father, to follow you in this tempting world. Amen.